AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song? Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. So the goal of physics is to understand the universe. And on one hand, you could say we've been making great progress. Look how far we have come. On the other hand, you could say, look at all the mistakes we've made. Every idea we've had about the universe has been proven wrong, except for the current idea, which we're also pretty sure is wrong. We just can't prove it yet. physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I've always wanted to understand the big picture of the universe. 
Frankly, I'm amazed that we can understand any of it at all. And the history of humanity is of misunderstandings, of making mistakes and fixing them in a way that we hope bends gently towards the truth. But as our ideas get more and more accurate, they also get harder and harder to understand. From the ancient myths about the way the universe worked to the crazy predictions of general relativity, today's ideas are pretty hard to wrap your brain around. And I find when I'm interacting with folks in the general public and listeners of this podcast, most of the questions and most of the misconceptions people have when they write to me are about topics in cosmology. How big is the universe? Where was the Big Bang? How can we actually know the universe has a size or an age or all of these things? And there are quite a few ideas that are out there about how the universe works that are not really quite right, but yet are often repeated in popular science presentations. And so today on the podcast, I want to talk about... why everyone misunderstands cosmology. And I'm not just talking about everyday people out there. I mean scientists. We've basically been misunderstanding the universe as long as there have been people. And to help me break this down, I have a fun guest and the author of a new book exploring the history of cosmology from our first early mistakes and bad ideas to our current probably wrong theories about how the universe works. Okay, well, then it's my pleasure to introduce to the podcast, Zach Wienersmith. Zach is most well known for being married to Kelly, the famous guest host of this podcast. Zach, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm more famous. You're just being funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Zach is also the author of SMBC, a hilarious webcomic that has no set characters or themes, but just folks pun at thinkers in physics, economics, math, philosophy. Basically, Zach's job is to troll nerds everywhere. Together with Kelly, he's the author of Soonish, a book that tells us why future technology will mostly be disappointing. And they have a new book coming out this fall called A City on Mars, which is all about how living in space will be dangerous and uncomfortable. You guys are really optimists, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we are the gatekeepers of the truth. Is, is the fact <laughs> and this is not Zach and Kelly's first experience on podcasts. Zach also did a podcast, which ended in 2014, which was called the Wienersmith Weekly. Is that right? The Weekly Wienersmith, released once every 10 years. Do you think it's a coincidence that 2014 is the year you ended your podcast and also the year podcasts took off? The coincidence is that my first child was born that year. Maybe it's her fault. <laughs> <laughs> but Zach is not here today to talk about either of those books or his podcast. He's here today to talk about something else entirely. Zach has a new book coming out on cosmology. Zach, tell us the title of your new book. The Universe Abridged Beyond the Point of Usefulness. <laughs> so why did you write this book, Zach? What inspired you to abridge the entire universe? Well, I, I actually have a whole series of books that are not useful. I... Um, uh, you know, it's a funny story, actually. So I, I, I released a book of religion-related comics, and kind of as a joke, I abridged the whole Bible. I, the, the goal was to do every book of the Bible in one sentence. <laughs> I got it down to like one to three sentences per per book of the Bible. The the the, all, all the New Testament is much more funny with short clip sentences because there are a lot of letters. But um, that book, uh, which was originally a gimmick, like outsold the book it was meant to be a gimmick for by like 10 to 1. <laughs> and so I thought, I like money. Uh, and also, this is fun. So I, I did one that was abridging all of science. 
and then one that was less popular but near and dear to my heart, which was abridging all of Shakespeare's sonnets. And the newest one is abridging all of the universe. And strictly speaking, it's more like abridging cosmology and its history. Uh, but but I'm going with the universe. What's the sort of special mental challenge that comes in abridging, in like boiling something down to its essentials? Have you learn anything by abridging the Bible and Shakespeare that you apply to the universe? Yeah, to be honest, for me, it's really fun. So as you mentioned, like one of my hats is as a researcher, which means, you know, just when you research for a book, you become a very boring person who reads very boring books that nobody else is reading because you're trying to get a job done. And I try to take the same approach to the extent I can to these mini books. I mean, you know, I, I can't spend, you know, uh, years on, on a single one, but but I do try to read like you know, the actual literature. And I talk to people like you who actually know what they're talking about, because there's obviously no <laughs> chance I'm going to like learn the deep math in a short period of time. And then uh, I try to get to where I understand it and then can tell jokes about it, because it's very hard to tell jokes about something that you don't at least more or less mm -hmm. understand, which is interesting. By the way, I have this theory that everyone instead of doing a thesis, people should just like do a 15 minute joke set on it to actually prove <laughs> they know what they're talking about. So there were a bunch of places where, uh, on, on stuff I, in retrospect is fairly basic where I thought I knew sort of what the deal was. And then as I'm writing it, I'm like, I don't feel like I understand this at the level I need to, to explain it to somebody else. Um, and so the result of that was, you know, a lot of talking to you and other cosmologists and then also just, you know, uh, doing, doing reading. I've, I've, uh, you know, cosmology texts. I'm trying to understand something like, like, like one of the, one of the really hard things to understand a lot of this is like why a particular finding was really important. Cause often it like interfaces with like cultural stuff. I think it's really fascinating to try to boil down the whole history of cosmology because the approach you've taken is not just like, here's everything we understand today, but here's how all of the ideas have developed. Here's like what the original wrong ideas were and then the later wrong ideas and now our latest probably wrong ideas. <laughs> I think that's a really fascinating approach because as you say, at each moment we think maybe we've understood the universe and then later that's all thrown in the trash bin. I think it's also interesting, at least for the way my brain works, to go through the history of what was thought because it often makes much more clear why we think something now. So you, you, you may have had this experience where you're like explaining something from cosmology to someone and they're like, but that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense to me. And you're like, well, one, you should have heard what we believed before. <laughs> but two, like, however weird it is, we have all these weird threads and this is the idea that pulls them together. Um, my sense is a lot of people, when they first hear about dark matter, are just like, oh, it's just the luminiferous ether all over again and these physicists, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, but then when you get into it, you're like, oh, but there's, you know, of course, we, you know, anybody can be wrong about anything, but there's actually there's pretty good evidence of it being a very robust concept. For me, I feel like I had this kind of vague idea about dark matter and, and not that I have like a deep like mathematical sense of it now, but I have a much better picture on like why we need this. And, and what's neat is that does kind of proceed out cause uh, it proceeds out like in this kind of fairly neat historical fashion where like each each discovery kind of leads to a whole new set of problems and so like for me at least chronologically you're telling the story of, of the, the things that were thought in different time gives you a much better sense of where we are now and how we, you know, how we got there. Yeah, it's sort of like a meta story. I mean, I think of each kind of science as a story. We're telling a story about the universe. Here's how it works. It does this. It swishes that way. It expands the other way. And now we're telling like the meta story of how that story has evolved. 
Uh, I think that's really cool. And especially for this topic, you know, the whole universe, the cosmology, this really is fascinating to go deep into history because it's an ancient question, right? Like literally the question that people asked 35,000 years ago, or maybe even 100,000 years ago, as they're looking up into the night sky, are the same questions we're asking, like what's out there and how does it all work? And what does that mean for how we're going to live our lives and whether or not I should bonk that person on the head with a rock to get their stuff? Right? Basic <laughs> right. questions we're still trying to figure out the answer to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know what's cool about that, too, is, you know, I had this. This is something that, that, that I felt very strongly when we were researching the history of space travel, which is like, it's amazing the cadence once you get to the 20th century. Like that that to me is one of the most astonishing things because, you you know, it, it's like you go from this world where it's not clear that even like, like nebulae or galaxies and then suddenly the universe is gigantic. So it's amazing that a person like if you talk to a farmer in like 1800, you know, they certainly know more than like a farmer from like 3000 BC, but their sort of universe isn't that much different, you know, in terms of its scope. And then all of a sudden, like very quickly, it's not only gigantic, but kind of alien, kind of like bizarre. <laughs> that for me was astonishing. Like, like just during like a 30 year period, how much, how much, like it must've been a very strange time to be an astronomer. It's a strange time to be a human because each of these discoveries changes essentially the universe that we think we live in, which changes the context of our whole lives. You know, we're important and we're in the center of the universe. Nope, we're a tiny speck of dust in an unimaginably <laughs> vast universe, right? So go ahead, bonk that guy with a rock. Nothing really matters, you know? But let's take it one step at a time. Let's go all the way back. I love that in your book, you really started from the very basics of cosmology, which really has its roots in like mythology. You know, before we had like sensible ways to develop knowledge, people just told stories about what they saw in the sky. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How far back did you do your research? Did you learn to read like ancient clay tablets? <laughs> I wish. I, yeah, I, I wish I had the kind of time uh, to do that. No, I, I got like books of creation myths and, and selected a few that like seemed to lend themselves to making jokes. Um, <laughs> the joke for me was like, uh, you know, what, what we what we always do, of course, in, the, the deal in science is you have a theory and then you assess how it interfaces with the facts. So the fun part was to kind of be like, how would you rule out this theory from ancient Babylon using modern cosmology, which is kind of fun. Like I had a joke about how like in the Enuma Elish, there's this uh, idea that the goddess Tiamat was split in half and half of her is stretched into the heavens. And that that is the heavens, you know. Back up. Tell us what this document is. You referenced it, but it's not something I'm familiar with. Holy documents from the uh, ancient Near East, uh, you know, where were the, the, the cradle of civilization. You know, can I say, by the way, what's what's kind of it's kind of fascinating to me anyway, like. Like, why do humans bother with stories like this? You know, I mean, so there's stories like that you read in in like religious or, or, or like, you know, oral history traditions that do seem to really clearly have like a political or social organizational purpose. And maybe in some of these cases with these foundation myths, what's going on is they're saying like we are a special group or something. But a lot of them just seem weird. You know, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You're just like, like, there's the, the other one I mentioned. Well, the, the three I mentioned is this one from ancient Babylon or ancient Near East and one from um, ancient China, although China is very old. So it's kind of like the middle of China. And then like, like, of course, one, one about the Bible. Um, and what's fascinating, like the one from ancient China is just about like, this, it's this story about a giant who just sort of carves up the universe till there's like, till there's a sky and a ground and then he dies. And in a theme that I think is, is in a number of other creation myths, parts of like this initial being become the pieces of the universe. And so there's not, there's at least not a kind of obvious and therefore here's how you should live your life or, and therefore <laughs> the, the guy with the tall hat is in charge, you know? Um, 
And so it's just kind of fascinating that we, we like, but every culture does this. Every culture, I mean, maybe there's some exception somewhere, but it seems to be a normal thing to just speculate on on how things started. And I don't have like a sort of good theory about why we do this. Yeah, I think it tells us something about why these questions are important. But I think cosmology as mythology sort of tells us about the way we do science also. I think in the end, it's all stories. Like the scientific answers we have now are still stories. I mean, they're supported with evidence and they're backed by mathematics and they're told in a different language, but still they're stories. And I don't know, I think maybe it tells us just about the way we think as like rational creatures looking for cause and effect. You know, as a human being living in the world, you're trying to understand like, I was hungry today. Why was I hungry? Oh, I didn't eat. Okay, there's a story. You know, it's just sort of like maybe part of the way our brains work. And the reason that we use cause and effect as a way to explain the whole universe, you know, just that we are storytellers. But it's fascinating also to me what those various stories tell us about the people and the sort of the tools they have to tell those stories. Like we know that the ancient Greeks told a story about the structure of the cosmos and their story was like very geometric, right? They had Euclid, they had geometry like built deeply into their brains. And so they thought about, you know, the earth is the center of the cosmos and things are moving around them and everything is embedded in spheres. But if I read like ancient Chinese texts about this, you know, the Chinese didn't have the same sort of advanced sense of geometry, but they were still studying the stars. They like looked at the stars and they used, you know, algebra and like arithmetic to study these patterns. They just didn't think about it in the same sort of geometric way, which is sort of blows my mind. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but of course, you know, the, the, a lot of ancient Greek traditions have that, like, you better know your geometry because it's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 important to philosophy. Uh, yeah, yeah. What was it? Plato's Academy was had a sign that uh, said something along the lines of like, you know, don't enter here unless you know. Geom I think it was geometry. I might have that wrong. Yeah, that's just, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, like they come up with this like, you know, neat spherical universe. Uh, and then, you know, like like thousands of years later, people are still talking about platonic solids and this sort of thing as aspects of the universe. It's interesting. I was reading an analysis of ancient Chinese cosmology, actually, and they were talking about how it's sort of weird that the Chinese never really applied geometry to their system. Like the Chinese picture of the cosmos is like a flat disk of an earth surrounded by like a half bowl of a sky. And this sort of makes sense to them in terms of their equations. They can like predict eclipses and stuff, but it doesn't sort of like come together in your mind like if the sun goes below the earth disk, then like everything in the sky should be shaded. Then why is like the moon ever bright? You know, it's just sort of like just doesn't make sense from a very basic geometrical standpoint. And there are some evidence in writing or people like trying to put this together and be like, hmm, this doesn't make sense. I don't know. And they just sort of move on. I wonder with some of the stuff what's going on is like. It's very easy as a modern person to be like, well, obviously the utility of this stuff is just knowing how the universe works. But to a person of, the, uh, of a particular point in the past, it's the utility is so I can do astrology or I can, you, <laughs> right. you know, s s some other things. So it's not really relevant if it's quite accurate in that particular sense. And of course, the Greeks famously got a bunch of stuff wrong, right? Part of the story we're telling today is about how everybody got everything wrong for so long. <laughs> um, and so you tell a story in your book about why the Greeks settled on a cosmos with the earth is at the center rather than the sun at the center and it's all about parallax do you want to tell that story yeah yeah well it's just it's funny um you know i, I should say this is all like i don't want people to get the impression that it's too in-depth in this book it's a joke book but so like you know if you're just sitting here on the surface of the earth and you don't have a really good telescope the stars don't parallax which makes perfect sense if the earth is just in the middle and immobile and doesn't make sense if the earth is uh moving around the sun but of course the you know the truth is they do parallax it's just that they're so far away 
Uh, we don't find this out till I, I forget who's the first person who observes that. Would that be like 18th century? It's, it's in the book somewhere. Yeah, it's like almost the 18th century before we can actually see the stars wiggling. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like it's actually quite reasonable, uh, so, so to speak. It's like, why don't they do this? So I, I do talk about how there, there is a guy named Aristarchus of Samos who, who actually got pretty close to the mark. Although I think you always want to be careful with this. I mean, I kind of tell this as a joke because like, you know, it's a little dangerous to be like, well, Democritus was right. And it's like about Adams, you know, but you have to be a little careful because it was like, well, was he right for the right reasons, you know? And uh, cause, or, or more to the point, it's like if everybody's got a theory, you can always look back and be like, ah, oh, this one person got it right, you know. <laughs> but indeed, there was a guy uh, named Aristarchus of Samos who said, you know, the sun's in the middle, the earth goes around it. And he even suggested the earth was tilted on its axis, which is pretty darn cool. Uh, but of course... That theory can't explain a bunch of stuff that the Aristotle theory does explain, like like the star's parallax. And then there are these you know other ideas about like, if Earth is zooming around, why don't I like you feel the normal effects I would feel if I was like zooming around? To us now, as modern people, that's not very intuitive, but it would make perfect sense, right? Back then, I suppose that, that like, why, why don't I feel the wind blowing on my face? Why, why when I drop something, does it just go straight down if I'm if I'm like going around this racetrack? You know, so there are actually good good arguments for Aristotle's position over against uh, Aristarchus's. Uh, so, I mean, I, I do kind of tell this as a joke, like, why didn't we listen to Aristarchus? But, you know, of course, you, you, it's, it's a dangerous thing to reason backwards from history and try, try to find the one crazy guy who happened to be right. Exactly. You got enough crazy Greeks with enough typewriters and one of them is going to bang out a theory of the universe that, that looks pretty good in hindsight. That's right. Yeah, ex ex exactly. Yeah. But I, I love this argument of the Greeks. They're like, well, if the Earth is moving, then we should be able to tell. And you're right. They're more sophisticated than just like, I should feel the breeze or we should all fall off the Earth. They came up with a really clever strategy to tell if the earth was moving like let's look at the stars and see if they're wiggling and they were totally right their mistake though was that they thought the stars were close by they thought the stars were like not really that far away and so they should be wiggling a lot and that was the one mistake they made if they had known the stars were so distant they might have figured this all out earlier right and it's it, and it makes sense because it's like stars are really far away like distances you know like not that we encounter distance like this in normal life but it's like a little less crazy for us now because we're just used to it right but like like insane like uh impossible i don't mean, I'm, you know, I'm think about how you would have to express these numbers uh before you had arabic numerals so it's, it's, it's not surprising that for them that was unintuitive all right so i can't wait to dig into more ways that we got cosmology wrong but first let's take a quick break This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, we're back and we're talking to Zach Wienersmith, who's written a joke book about cosmology, making fun of everybody else's clever ideas about the universe. Zach, do you feel like that's your role in modern nerddom is just to make fun of ideas? <laughs> uh to the extent that's a fun job, yeah, I I, I like that job. That's a. <laughs> you guys over there work really hard. I'm just going to sit here and make pot shots at you. Oh no, absolutely! I you know look, this is all about me. I'm just I'm just <laughs> I'm just enjoying myself, especially making fun of chemists. Chemists is it's just really it's just really satisfying. Oh, you got to be careful. I made some comments about chemistry on this podcast and I got some emails. Let me tell you. Did you, you really? From what we... Oh, boy. <laughs> I From guess chemistry you professors. They're, they're, and they're dangerous, too. They know how to blow stuff up. So <laughs> My son was taking high school chemistry last year and he asked me for help and I couldn't help him and I got frustrated. And I remember being frustrated by high school chemistry and I expressed my frustration on the podcast towards the whole field of chemistry, which, of course, for which I have nothing but very deep respect. I was reminded of the reasons for that okay well you know what it is? here's here's the thing about chemistry I, I'll, I'll absorb the emails on this which is that like in biology you're just like okay nothing makes any sense it's all specific every time you look at one thing and in physics you're like oh it all it all there's like two equations you just have to apply them but in chemistry <laughs> it's like it's this unholy hybrid where there are almost <laughs> rules did i ever tell you i was uh this is ages ago i think i was in um i remember talking to a chemistry professor and she had this story about 
they couldn't get enough TAs, so they brought in a physics TA, uh, figuring like, well, he, he, he teach chemistry. And I guess like maybe may, may what, what you or I would have done, which is he was he, the story I was told was that he began with the Schrodinger equation. <laughs> 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 in principle you can derive all of chemistry from that that's yes. right that's right just 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 uh it's an exercise for the student uh <laughs> <laughs> no i get it but you know also modern science has many many different layers we don't just do particle physics for everything right you can't that's predict right. the price <laughs> of sneakers using string theory you know there are other useful kinds of science <laughs> out right. there for that's sure right. <laughs> All right. So but today we are talking about how cosmologists have always gotten it all wrong. And we talked about how the Greeks got it wrong and the sort of ancient picture of the Earth at the center of the universe was wrong. And but let's talk about how we figured that out and sort of like the steps along the way, because I think often that just sort of gets yada yada over, you know, Galileo telescopes. Therefore, we figured that out. But there's a bunch of interesting steps and like different paths people were taking at the time uh, to get there. Yeah, th for me, this was maybe the most interesting part of the book, uh, at, le at least it didn't involve modern cosmology, which was like, so, you know, the, the, the story that I think I was told was one, you, you go to Claudius Ptolemy and like everybody who does now outmoded science, he's like treated as being kind of silly because he has his uh, epicycle model, which you know, just be clear, just, you know, it's 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 Aristotle's you know, spheres within spheres model, but with these little modifications to to make the planets behave. Um, and and it's, it's it's quite a good model, and it rains for you know over a thousand years. Right, and let's be clear, it really works, right? It like actually matches what we see. People laugh at like oh, cycle circles within circles, ha ha ha. But like this thing really worked. It really works. Yeah, I almost want to say that the funny thing is, I mean, there's stuff like this right now where we like so you know famously um, relativity matters for like timekeeping on satellites. But I I could be wrong, but I assume the satellites don't put in like relativity equations. They just tick back one second or something, you know, like, and it's a perfectly good way to model the system. And so it's likewise with epicycles. The main problem with epicycles, as I understand it, is just that like, well, one, of course, they don't actually exist. That's a you know, non-trivial, <laughs> uh, uh, but like. <laughs> That's a detail. But beyond that, it's also just like, it's it's not very satisfying as a kind of scientific theory to, to say like, well, each planet has its own thing and that's just the deal. Although maybe it makes more sense in a world where you're imagining like, this is all like set up by a deity who, who did it a certain way or something, you know, and they just made the planets this way. But but anyway, so, and the next issue, except this, this blue my mind I, i'm sure cosmologists all know this but so you know the story that gets told is copernicus uh writes his uh his famous book uh dies in 1543 it gets published and it it proves that the um sun is in the middle and 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 you're all done but the the amazing thing is copernicus actually preserved epicycles for a different reason which was that he thought he was still kind of in the zone of perfection like the, the space still has to be perfect and so these objects in space move in perfect circles yeah, they go around the sun, but in perfect circles. And that creates problems because you don't get the these funny little behaviors of the planets when they're not moving in ellipses. And so that, that's, that just totally blew my mind because, you know, I, I, I think we'll, we'll make a version of this over and over, which is that like, I was, I was talking to Kali about this the, the other day. It's like you hear these stories when you're a student that there was a decisive experiment or thought that just changed things instantly. And it turns out there's a lot more vibes to it. 
uh, and and old theories die hard because like the old theory wouldn't have been there in the first place if it wasn't pretty good. So that that was fascinating to me. And then the, the next thing along those lines, which which blew my mind again, was 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 you get to Tico Brahe, and I had thought he had just another sun centered model, but he didn't. He actually had the Earth at the center. What he did instead, and I, I this is the kind of thing where I, I think I would ask your audience to sort of close their eyes and visualize this because it takes a second if you don't like have a picture in front of you, which is. What he thought, what Tico Brahe thought is there's Earth in the middle. And then if you can imagine it far out, you got the sun going around the Earth. And then around the sun are the other space objects, the other planets, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. It's genius. It's genius where like, let's keep the Earth at the center while solving the problems of the data. That's what I love about it. And you can almost, if you want to be sort of generous, you could kind of think about it as sort of trying to bring together these two ideas, one of which is like, what is the data telling us? And one of which is like this idea we want to hold on to of a kind of like Earth-centered cosmos. And I, I think you can even argue there's, there, there are tensions, you, know, you don't want to stretch the analogy too hard, but you can talk about the certain tensions in modern cosmology like, you know, my understanding is the reason and I won't get too far ahead of this, but like the, you know, there's this question about like, why is there more matter than antimatter? And part of why that's even a question is just like, well, I, I, I do think you could argue that part of why it's a question is that physicists kind of like balance, or at least they'd like there to be an explanation for why there isn't mm -hmm. uh, a balance between things. And what's interesting is it's not quite the same as saying there should be perfect spheres or, you know, uh, that there should be in the center. But there, there are kind of vibes about these things, about like what, what, what is attractive to us. And But what's also funny, though, is that Brahe, like, by trying to kind of you know, do both sides ends up creating this kind of unholy hybrid that's uh, just, just, just not on. <laughs> I think it was more of a holy hybrid, right? He wanted to yeah, keep the point. earth at the center, right? Yeah. So that was amazing to me. And then, and that ties into the, to like the thing, I think it really was interesting to me that gets into how we tell these stories, which is, so there's a story that I remember being told to me, and then I looked it up and I found it in other places. So it's not just me misremembering, which is that uh, it goes something like this is Galileo points his telescope at the sky, which of course he actually did, uh, and he sees that Venus has phases, and that tells him that Venus must go around the sun. And I had actually written this into the book, maybe it was one of the drafts you read, I remember I was rereading it and I was like, it struck me, I was like, well, wait a minute, like I can think of other ways Venus could have phases, at least in the narrow sense of like, part of it's light and part of it's dark, and this happens in a cyclical pattern. And in fact, like that's not even precluded by the Ptolemy, uh, model. It's just, it would be, it would, you know, because, because, you know, even if like the, the sun is just like the third object out, it's going to be in a different relation to us vis-a-vis -vis Venus on a repeating basis. So th there should be something like phases. And so my understanding, I, I, I got way too into this before I had to like give up and, and then get back to uh, just like writing the one sentence I needed. But it's like, <laughs> it's, it's not that Venus has phases, although that's part of it. It has phases and it also the phases coincide with it like getting bigger and smaller in our field of view in a certain way that is very hard to salvage in a Ptolemy model. Maybe impossible, I don't know. Um, but which makes perfect sense if you put the sun in the middle. Yeah, and I love how this reveals how much work is involved in making jokes about science. You know, as a fellow, <laughs> like, jokey science book author, you're right. You have to really know your stuff to make a joke. And you could end up reading, like, a whole book to support one sentence. It's incredible. No, no, it's totally like that. Yeah, I think what it is is in order to tell a joke, you have to be, like, a little bit of a snot, you know? <laughs> and you, you can't do that convincingly unless, I mean, I don't want to treat it like I'm like a deep expert in cosmology, but, but my view, I, mean, I was talking to um, Ron Abramitsky, who's a sociologist about this, who, who also writes pop science. And he'd said, you know, he he'd said almost verbatim the way I, I like to say it, which was that you like to at least be like two steps ahead of what you're saying. You always know a little bit more than what you're saying, then you feel comfortable saying it. And when you're not there, you start to feel a little 
Like, you're not at leisure to make this joke because your joke might reveal you as an idiot. <laughs> and so that, that you know, but this, so that's why you end up, like, reading with this. I mean, I'm, you know, it's a pop side thing. I'm sure I blew it on something. But, like, I, you know, I did a, like, you look at these diagrams and you're like, I must be misvisualizing this. Like, why can't Venus have phases? And by the way, in the Brahe model, you can really get those phases, right? Because it really is going around the sun, you know? Yeah, so just to clarify for our listeners in case they don't have this picture in their mind, you know, what we're talking about is like how much of Venus you can see, how much is illuminated by the sun. And it's very easy to imagine in a sun-centered solar system that as Venus moves around the sun, either all of it is lit up, like if Venus is on the other side of the sun than the Earth, then all of Venus that we can see is lit up. And if Venus is on the same side as the sun as us, then the side of Venus that's lit up is pointing away from us and we're only seeing Venus's like dark backside. So in this sun-centered system, right, you see like huge phases of Venus the same way you do of the moon. But in the Ptolemaic system, right, if Venus is going around the Earth and the sun is also going around the Earth, then you're absolutely right. There are still phases there. They're not the same kind of phases and they have different patterns than the phases in like our system, but you do still see phases. So the simple story that people often tell that like phases of Venus prove that the sun is at the center, you're right, it's not accurate. You can have phases and actually have the Earth at the center of the system. It's, it's fascinating. T totally fascinating. And, and related to that, one story that, that, that was amazing to me uh, is the story about part of the, another thing Galileo did is he just looks at the moon. And of course, you know, anyone who's looked at the moon with a telescope, even a crummy one, even binoculars, you can see that there's lumps on it. You know, there's there's peaks and, and valleys and stuff. And what's interesting is to a modern person, it's kind of like, well, I don't, it's hard to imagine why that matters at all to any of the pictures of about like where things are. But my understanding is that was very important because it's like, if you're existing in this paradigm where these are sort of the divine spheres and then you see, oh, my God, it's got lumps on it, just like the home planet. You know, that that was actually a big shift. But what's interesting about that is that, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm being unfair to this complex history, but it seems like like there's a, some deep level on which what's going on is like kind of vibes based. Right. And, and so that's what I mean when I say it's like there's never a definitive experiment. It's actually like three or four things where you're like, you know, we could salvage the old model. But the amount of stuff you'd have to say just happened to go right is getting bigger and bigger. And whereas if we switch to this, you know, Kepler model uh, with these nice little laws and, and the sun at the middle, like the math is very simple and we don't have to do anything that feels ad hoc, or at least I guess not too much. But that it, it explains to you also why this stuff is such a process and how like, you know, the, the simple story won't do because actually the work is quite meticulous. I, I feel like it's very easy as a modern person to sort of be like, you know, well, just like run the video back of like how, <laughs> you know, how Venus looks in the sky, but you can't do that. You cannot even take a photograph, of course. It's just astonishing that people were even able to work this out to me. Like just kind of like you, you, you imagine Kepler just kind of like looking at, at tables and somehow these ideas are instead it's, it's it's incredible it tells you why geometry was so powerful right like it helps you import into your mind this sort of 3d picture of what's happening rather than just like looking at lists of numbers which is really hard to visualize and to me the answer to the question of like what's out there the answer to that is a geometrical answer it's this is here and that's there and this is the relationship between them but i think partially that's just because we're all you know thinking the greek way and if, you know, the Chinese cosmology had taken over the planet, we might all think about things more arithmetically and more algebraically. It's hard to imagine. I think like the way the Greeks thought has influenced the way everybody thinks so deeply that it's hard to really step out of that and think about things in a different way.
Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's interesting too to me, like, because clearly next we have to get to Newton, which is like, there's there's this repeated figure, I think, in science that's, that's the Newton figure, who's the person who comes along and you're trying to tell this story that is as if they sort of like called the lightning down with the theory fully formed, but actually like, it, it, perhaps be more accurate to say like, there was a lot of information already and they were the ones who said, here is the grand synthesis. And so that, that's fascinating to me because like, I, 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 you know, just, just, just reading about Newton, who, who I think, you know, this, at least the stories that get told about him, I would say are more accurate, at least that's my impression. But but coming along and like part of why Newton's theory is so powerful is you have a kind of like simple theory about like, you know, how like a baseball, well, he wouldn't have a baseball, but like how a rock behaves in your hand and you can use like the same math and it just pops out all this other stuff, including Kepler's stuff, which is just, you know, so amazing. Uh, and by the way, my favorite detail about that too is this story that like, <laughs> that like, I was, I was explaining this to my daughter and she just got a fit of the giggles of, of like Newton having basically worked out how the universe works and being like, I'm just going to sit on that. <laughs> uh, like it's, it's, it's so different from modern science. I don't know. Maybe there's someone like that in modern science. There's probably someone out there who's like the modern Newton who just like unified everything a couple years ago and is just waiting for Edmund Halley the equivalent to be like, you know, that just, that really feels publishable to me. It's hard to imagine, especially at Cambridge, you know, which I think has basically <laughs> been a shark tank for centuries, right? I don't understand how right. you didn't get on that. Uh, it is fascinating. But I liked your point earlier about how old theories die hard and that a lot of what we do in science is vibes based. And we'll get into it later, but there's a lot of just sort of like preference for different kinds of theories about the universe. You know, we have this thing we call like the cosmological principle the universe should be the same everywhere. And like, why do we think that? Well, because it would be pretty cool if it was true and uh, we haven't proven it wrong. So let's hang on to it as long as we can, right? Yeah. I was talking a little to Sean Carroll about this, about this idea that like, you know, there's this debate, we'll get to it in a minute, about like what shape is the universe? But he was pointing out like, well, you know, you could just ditch the cosmological principle and then all sorts of things open up and it's like, but we don't want to do that. And uh, we'll get to that. I guess we, maybe we should uh, <laughs> st stay, stay on track. All right. So let's take another break before we come back and consider ditching some fundamental ideas in modern cosmology. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, 
Because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, we're back and we're talking to Zach Wiener-Smith about why ancient scientists have gotten it wrong and why modern scientists are probably also going to be made fun of in future joke books about the universe. Yeah, so we're up to Newton. And then, of course, you know, Newton like reigns supreme, at least over cosmology for a long time. So my understanding is Newton, we could say he solved the universe. And of course, he, you know, he has the equations for gravity, at least in the, in the relevant regimes. But my understanding is he believed the rest of the universe was like infinite with like randomly distributed stars, so that is, as we would say it today. Mm-hmm. And so this creates problems, right? So the famous one is Olber's paradox, which is this, if there's all these stars and the universe has been around forever, how come I can't find my keys when I go outside at night? Because it's dark. Shouldn't there be light everywhere? And there's all this other stuff, like, you know, people this time can see nebulae but they don't really know what they are you know and they they, they you know uh, can see what we, we, you know what, what we come eventually to know are galaxies just like ours but they don't know what they are and this to me is like this incredible period in history and we're talking about the 19th century we're not talking about that long ago right like we're talking about like two grandmas ago right like just really not that long ago <laughs> what a unit of time a grandma yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah so to speak, people from that time lived in a much smaller universe in their perception. And I, I guess you would, you would say the big figure in, in working this out is Henrietta Swan-Levitt, who figures out a way to like objectively measure the distance of certain objects in space and helps settle this idea that, in fact, yeah, those stars are really, 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 really far away. And then that leads to, you know, all sorts of cool cool analysis. There's actually, I, I think I, I don't even know if I had this in the draft I sent you, but I edited 
edited this version. So there's a story I was telling that I think is slightly wrong, which is that Hubble looks up and sees red shifting and then concludes the universe is expanding, but it's actually a little more complicated. Um, and I, you know, again, like this is a joke book. I don't get too into it, but there's this guy named, uh, who I, has the best name ever. It sounds like an alias, Vesto Melvin Slifer, uh, if I'm pronouncing <laughs> it right. My understanding is he he's an American astronomer, uh, he is the first to say to note the redshift, although I, I believe he was first using it to say that like the galaxies are spinning. Uh, but he notes this redshift and he starts like looking at galaxies and there's this weird thing, which is not all, but most of the galaxies are redshifting. But just the important thing is that the, the, the galaxies are mostly moving away, which is, you know, you would, you would think naively that it should be random, right? There's just a bunch of stuff floating around in space and it's just kind of random. And... Uh, the story I th I think I was told the story I was I was planning to tell was just like well Hubble comes along says red shifting and therefore the universe is expanding right because that explains why everything's moving away from us but what what actually happens is Hubble says uh, so red shifting is already very well known by the time Hubble is making his big contribution which is this equation that says the distance of the galaxy. Uh, is proportional to its velocity. That is, the farther away the galaxy is, the faster it's running away from us, which is super duper weird, right? I mean, this when I think about this too is like, so it's not just that during this period, the universe got a lot bigger. It's that it also got a lot weirder, right? I mean, I feel like, like all these cosmologies we've talked about so far, like you could explain to someone pretty easily. In fact, you could draw a picture and be like, it's like this, you know, and, I, and people would basically get it. But then you say everything in space is moving away from us at the same time, almost everything. That's bizarre. And um, especially if, of course, you don't want to conclude, and now we know better why, but you don't want to conclude that it's because we're special, because that's proven to be historically dangerous. <laughs> but that's very unintuitive, right? And then it's more unintuitive, like, why should farther away stuff be expanding away? And it turns out there's, there's a very clear explanation, but that, like, is getting into this part of history where cosmology just is not something that's intuitive to people anymore, which is that it, space itself is a stuff that's expanding. And so there's just more of the stuff between us and a distant galaxy uh, than a close one. You know, the, the, the classic metaphor, which tell me if you don't like, uh, the classic metaphor is the raisin bread one. You know this one? I love that metaphor. Yeah, that one works really well. Yeah, I, I think it's a nice one. I mean, I, you know, it get, the, where it breaks down to me is like when you try to get the big bang out of it. You're like, I guess the, the raisins are getting close to each other until you have some sort of ultra dense <laughs> raisiny something. You know, the, it, it, like the bread has gone away or I, I don't know. It changes phase into a raisin plasma. <laughs> <laughs> this is a paper. This is a paper. But we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so I like what, what I love about the raisin bread example is just like so the idea is that you know I guess raisins would be something like the galaxies and and the bread dough is space. And when you bake the raisin bread, it's not just that the raisins pull apart from each other. It's that the ones that are initially apart from each other get farther faster because the, the dough is expanding and there's just more dough in there to expand. And that's where it gets really neat and even more unintuitive because you're like, this is Einstein's general relativity. That space time, you know, space is not the stage where stuff happens. Space is the stuff. Space time is the stuff. It's the raisin bread. And to me, that's it's just such a fascinating little moment. I mean, all this happens in like a 20 year period. It's just absolutely incredible. It's like unfathomable to me. Like in this era where like all sorts of cool results come out all the time now, but it's not like that. It's not like the whole universe, your conception of it just <laughs> gets blown away. And again, makes this kind of phase shift, so to speak, from like, you know, vast but intuitive to hard to understand, at least for most of us. I mean, you've been around general activity so long, maybe it makes perfect sense to you all the time. But uh, <laughs> for the rest of us, it's like, we got to think about it. No, it definitely doesn't. And I think you're right that we transitioned from a universe that like 
kind of we could tell a story about to a universe where people are like, hmm, that sounds really mathy. It doesn't really make sense to me without a lot of math. I think that's really fascinating. And it's also a really interesting story there about like how even Einstein came to reconcile the universe, the structure he had built, this general relativity with what he was seeing because he was missing part of the piece, right? He wasn't really able to tell the story in the right way, you know, to sort of connect the dots. When Einstein was developing his theory of general relativity, people thought the universe was static, right? People thought the universe was a certain way and it was the most natural idea was it had always been that way. Right? That there was no beginning to time at all because how that would be weird. You'd have to explain it. That was like the vibe at the time. So then Einstein's like, well, in my theory of general relativity, if we have a static universe with a bunch of like galaxies out there, they should get pulled towards each other. There's like gravity pulling stuff towards each other. Why isn't the universe collapsing? So he added this fudge factor, right? To like balance up against that, which if you look at it is like, kind of a terrible theory like it's really pretty ugly because it requires this like cosmological constant to push out on the universe in exactly the same amount that everything's pulling in it's like super finely balanced which these days people would have rejected that paper they're like that is a terrible idea you have this huge coincidence in your universe so then Hubble's like, well, actually, the universe is expanding, right? And so then we're like, hmm, well, that's interesting. You know, why would it be expanding that much? And so Einstein's like, well, maybe it's expanding, but it's decelerating. Maybe everything is still collapsing, but it's still expanding. It's like expanding now, but expanding slower and slower due to that gravity, right? So Einstein still didn't really have a grip on what was happening. And it took a while before, you know, we discovered the universe is expanding and accelerating. We had to like re-inject this Einstein cosmological constant to explain what we were seeing. So you're right. And I think that the current explanations of this stuff have led a lot of people to really pretty deep misunderstandings of how this stuff all works. You know, I want to talk about sort of like the misconceptions of modern pop cosmology, because I think you ran into some of these when writing your book. And I think like one of the big ones is this idea of the raisin bread like and the origin of the universe i think a lot of people have in their minds this concept that the big bang was like a tiny dot the universe was an atom and then it exploded through space and filled everything out i hear that all over the place people ask me like where was that dot where was the center of the universe can we see it right it's like a really common misconception you must have run across this also in your research yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I, I'm sure I was guilty of that. I had to update my understanding because I, I, was, I was trying to, I was actually talking to Eugene Lim about this, which is like, as you say, there's this idea that the universe starts infinitely small as like whatever that even means. Right. And uh, that's something else we should get into is this idea of infinitely this or that as being a real thing. Uh, but like, yeah, as so I was trying to figure out where does this idea come from? So going through this from a chronological perspective, which I like, this kind of what we've said so far with Hubble and Einstein tees up why you think there might be something called a big, what we now call a big bang, right? Because if you have this universe that's expanding and it's a like glob of space time, as I say in my vastly oversimplified way, well, if you rewind the tape, then you get to an earlier state where it's like the, everything is very tight, right? Or comparatively tight. It's kind of intuitive to maybe say, well, like in the extreme, it gets to a, a single point. But my understanding is Lemaitre, who's the guy who, who who's, who's famed for proposing this didn't believe that himself he, he he used the term primeval atom but my understanding is he meant atom is something like fundamental not as the size of an atom uh and so i don't know if that's where it comes from there's probably some historiography out there 
uh, of like how this idea seeped into the public consciousness. But yeah, I found almost everybody thinks Big Bang means there was this tiny atom and the word singularity gets used, I think, to mean infinitely tiny or something. Also, because we use singularity to mean infinitely tiny when we talk about like a black hole, right? We say there's a singularity, the center, infinite density, a lot of stuff trapped up in one point in space. And we can talk about a singularity for the Big Bang. It's just that it's a singularity sort of in time rather than in space. Rather than having all the stuff in the universe in one location, we have a moment in the universe where everything was super duper crazy dense. Right. And that's the singularity we're talking about, which is similar mathematically, but conceptually sort of very, very different because you're talking about the whole universe. And I remember the first moment I understood this, it was like a Big Bang going off in my brain because what it means is the Big Bang was not somewhere. It was everywhere everywhere like yeah much bigger bang than anybody ever thought of <laughs> it's, it's also much weirder right uh like like i don't know i mean maybe it's just, again we're getting back to the vibes but to me it's somehow like more intuitive that you started this tiny point and where something happened and then it all expands out but the idea that like no it happened everywhere at the same time i don't know what to do with that like my brain just doesn't work on that uh. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand it sort of makes more sense than having one place be special right wouldn't it be weird if the big bang was here and not there because then you could ask like well why was it here what's different about this point in space and there you go you break the cosmological principle that says everything is the same right <laughs> Yeah, but what's weird, maybe this will get us to the sort of the whole steady state stuff, is there is this weird thing where it just seems to be that for some people, the idea of an eternal universe is just more sensible than the idea of a starting point universe. And I don't personally have a good feel for why one, like, do, do you have an, like, do you have a gut reaction, like, like, separate from what you know is true or think to be true, like, what, like, do you have a gut reaction about what is more satisfying? To me, the universe with no beginning is more satisfying because it doesn't have a special moment in time. Just like I don't like a special point in space, a special moment in time needs an explanation. Whereas an eternal universe, well, it just kind of always was. You see, the problem is, I, I, this is just like being a weird human, but you're just like, <laughs> my, my instant thought is like, well, what started this eternal universe? And you're like, oh, no, wait, I can't ask that, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's like defining the grounds of debate so your question is no longer valid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I really like going chronologically, because you, you now understand, like, we even had, like, start talking about the Big Bang, because it follows very naturally, like, once you have Einstein and Hubble, uh, it makes sense to have this 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 next idea. And then once you have this next idea, you can start asking questions about like what the universe was like. And so there's this big debate, of course, in the mid 20th century, which is, well, do we have a Big Bang cosmology or is it this this e eternal model called the steady state model, which and, and, the, and the sort of avatar of this movement, the, the famous person in it is Fred Hoyle. You know, so he has this idea that you have this eternal universe and he has this thing called the creation field, which is constantly adding matter to keep things in balance. Um, to, you know, to maintain density throughout the universe, right? Then you get this question of like, well, you know, both, both these theories could explain this expanding universe we have. It's just working in a different way. And this is where it gets interesting because you're back to having these two models that really say something very different. You know, it's like, it's funny because you can, you can sort of like finish Newton and be like, okay, we basically got it with Einstein. But then there's actually this giant question, which is eternal versus not eternal, which is like <laughs> massive. So for me, like, I will admit, like, I'm a nerd. I knew about, like, a lot of this stuff, but I hadn't sort of worked out how all the pieces fit together. And you're back to one of these, like, at least to some degree, you know, vibes plus data situations where you have it's alpha and uh, gamma and, and, and beta gets slipped in for a joke. <laughs> You know, this idea that like, well, if we assume the Big Bang model is true, that is a, you know, not that there was a tiny point, that there was just a very hot, dense beginning, then we know stuff about how particles work. We know some stuff about how matter works. 
And we can say, well, what you, would you expect the universe to be like later if it started like this? And it turns out you can you can make predictions about kind of like like roughly what elemental makeup should you see, and they come up with these ratios, and it turns out they're they're pretty good ratios. And what was interesting for me is something like that. You're like, okay, but that doesn't disprove steady state, right? But it at least says like steady state requires more special pleading now, right? Because it requires you to say <laughs> the creation field that that Hoyle is positing happens to create with the same signature you would expect from the bang model, which is because we're, again, we're back to the like, well, you're, you're, you're comparing two models that, you know, the, the other model can basically do whatever you want it to do. It just, you know, requires ever more special pleading. And that's what, for me, so I, I'd, I'd known about the cosmic microwave background. I think I hadn't understood more deeply why it mattered. And so I had, I, I, I had to talk to a lot of people, including you. And then the, the way I understand it now, and, and correct me if I'm wrong is, is or at least the way I, I the story I tell is that you know you have this background level of radiation and it just the, the background level of radiation has certain qualities that are exactly what you'd predict under a big bang model and so essentially what you're saying is of course you know the steady state model where stuff is constantly being created it could be creating radiation too and there's no reason it you know couldn't create just the right temperature and everything uh, and in just the right spectrum but now you're to be the steady state guy you have to say like well i can handle all of the big bang results by just saying that's how my system does it you know i didn't predict any of it but it's just how my system does it too which is a really hard line to toe in science you know it is yeah especially because the big bang model predicts the cosmic background radiation which is really powerful yeah so both sides can make predictions and it just turns out the predictions is like you know, require you, you know, like, like confirm one model and the other model, you know, like Ptolemy could, could be made to accommodate all sorts of things, but would require you to make a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, <laughs> of like special stuff that happens for no reason, which to me is just, you know, it's sort of fascinating because, you know, a story will be told that's just something like there's cosmic microwave background, therefore the Big Bang is true. And I, I, I feel like I had heard this and repeated it and didn't have this deeper sense of like, well, it's about like what model can better predict this this thing we find when we look around. It's also really interesting what we mean by the Big Bang is true. And it turns out that what you mean by the Big Bang depends on if you're like an educated person out there reading pop sci about the origins of the universe or if you're like a researcher and modeling this stuff because there is a big difference. A lot of people, when I say the Big Bang, they're thinking about that singularity. They're thinking about the moment of creation of the universe, this first initial brilliant flash of light, right? But when modern physics talks about the Big Bang, that's not what they're talking about at all. They like fast forward past that part. They say, well, that part's a huge question mark. We don't know how anything got started. We don't know if there was a singularity. We don't know if there's quantum gravity. We don't know if there's an inflaton field. It's just basically shrug. And they say, but somehow we got to a very hot and dense universe, not in infinitely dense, right? Just some very, very hot and dense, like the hottest and densest universe that we could describe with our theories. From that point forward, we know how things work and we can model things forward. We can predict the cosmic microwave background radiation and the structure of the universe and everything is like high precision science. Before that moment, huge question mark. Now, general relativity, you know, predicts a singularity there, but nobody really believes that, right? No actual physicist out there thinks that really happened in our universe. They just think, well, we haven't figured that out yet. So there's this huge distinction between like what people imagine the Big Bang is and what it is in like actual science. Yeah, yeah. So one of the really interesting things related to that, I'd love to hear your reaction to this, is like what seemed to me to be going on is a scientist will say, 
we get an infinite quantity in this place. But what they mean is that like the equations we have with the theory we have here produces an infinity. But that doesn't mean they, they believe there's an actual infinite something or other. But I feel like it often gets reported in the press as, oh, there was an infinity thing, whatever that means. <laughs> and and, and so, so to speak, what the scientist is saying is we have a problem. And what, what the public is hearing is there were infinities. <laughs> To me, it's like a seg fault, right? You run your computer and it, the program crashes. You're not like, well, that's what it predicted. It predicted the universe is going to crash. It's like, no, your program didn't work. That's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> you got a bug somewhere, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. I think part of what's going on, I, I, I'm totally speculating here, but I think part of what's going on is just because it's cosmology. And so you're dealing with these things that are already giant and unintuitive. And so I, th- I think if you're like a casual reporter who hasn't gotten too much into it, you just you just hear like it's infinitely dense. <laughs> and you, you don't want to say like according to an equation, which is probably missing something is certainly missing something. <laughs> there's an infinity here, you know, which to me, that was fascinating, too, because there's just again, there's this sort of discrepancy between. I mean, I think this is a common thing when you explore a field, the, the, the thing that's being debated, it's almost always miles away from what the public thinks the debate is. Yeah. And there are also these really fun moments in science where physicists are like, well, the equations say this. But that's ridiculous. It definitely doesn't happen. And then it turns out it kind of does. <laughs> that's know, a good like, point. Yeah. Like black holes. People were like, black holes? Nah, there's no way the universe lets that happen. Okay, it turns out black holes are kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's that's an interesting <laughs> point. Yeah. So, <laughs> so basically, never listen to us. We don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> even when we're saying whether we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So then that leads to the part that for me was the hardest thing to write. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going I'm going to lean on you as I go through this to correct me if I say anything wrong, because this is for me the most unintuitive thing, which is one of the big questions is the shape of the universe. And actually, for me, part of what was tough is understanding why we even care about the shape of the universe. Uh, <laughs> what? Well, well, OK. How so, could a visual person, a comic artist, <laughs> not worry about shapes? Come on. When I, yeah, when, I, when, I, when I do perspective drawings, I don't wonder about whether the universe is probably curved or not. You know, I guess I guess if the scale was big enough I'd have to mess with my lines but no but it's, it's like I mean obviously it's an aesthetically interesting question right and then there are lots of questions in cosmology where like obviously it's not going to make your car run faster or put more food on the table but it's just like aesthetically attractive as a question right but so to speak that leaves open like you know, a huge number of questions you could be asking. So why are some sort of like more aesthetically interesting? So well, for your for your audience, so this, this question is like the universe can be curved in different ways that depend on how much stuff is in the universe. And it took me a while, frankly, to even get there with that. And I think I actually think in retrospect, part of what was tough for me about understanding this question, and you, you helped talk me through this as did a couple other people, is this like often when people talk about this casually, what they depict is something like the universe could be a big flat sheet. It could be a oh, the surface the of a sphere. Sheet. Yeah, it could be a big flat sheet, it could be the surface of a sphere, or it could be a saddle. I'm positive I've heard people say this and just sort of go on. Mm-hmm. As if like and, and just as an audience member who is not a physicist, uh, I mean like I'm I'm substantially nerdier than the average pop science consumer, but like this is deep <laughs> math stuff. And so like to me, I'm just like, this just does nothing for me. I have no idea what it would mean. And then worse, of course, as as you helped me understand, it's like you know, we can say sphere, but actually we're really just saying positively curved. Yeah. And so it turns out there's like an infinity of shapes 
uh, many of which are quite weird that could be positively curved. And that's actually true for all these models. Like the sheet can can loop back in on itself and do all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, I, I shouldn't say loop. See, I got to be careful uh, with the words I use. But anyway, like, so the, so these, these shapes that get presented to you in a pop setting are, I, I would say, misleading. I think they, they, they confused me because I, I started understanding, well, like, why can't one do the other? And like, what would it sort of feel like to be in one of these universes? And I, I think that's just, that's, that's just unintuitive. Like, that's just, that's too much for a human. Um, we're, we're just little things. <laughs> but I said, like, why? Why, why, why is this question interesting other than, again, the pure aesthetics? And that's what, what, where the history gets really interesting because it turns out, you know, uh, uh, spoiler, that observations seem to suggest we're in a flat universe. Flat, flat, again, like being not the preferred term. I forget you would say like, I know you say positively curved, negatively curved. What would you say? I guess, I guess it's okay to say flat. Yeah, zero curvature and flat. I think zero curvature. There, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we're in this flat universe. And why that is interesting is that it's surprising because it, it, it's sort of like you're balanced on a needle point. Why aren't we off in this one direction of, of somewhere in positive curvature or somewhere in negative curvature? We're in a flat zone. So in other words, at least as I understand it, it's an interesting question because the answer is a weird one. And that's just, you know, that that's where, to, to me, it gets fascinating. I mean, I'm sure like, like to, especially to a cosmologist, the shape of the universe is just a per se interesting question. But for me, it was interesting to know this kind of like chronological story about like, it shouldn't be flat, right? Like, 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 like it's kind of like the redshift, like it shouldn't be mostly redshifts. Like, something is wrong with how I'm understanding the universe that I think it shouldn't be flat. And then it becomes really cool. Um, and that's what really leads us ever deeper in the confusing universe, which gets to inflation, which was perhaps the second most confusing thing. It took me a really long time to even kind of feel like I understand inflation, which maybe if I, if I, if I like done a good enough job of basically saying what the point is. Yeah, I think so. You've explained like why it's weird that we have a flat universe. But to me, it's not weird to wonder about the shape of the universe. It's like wondering where it all came from. What is the age of the universe? It's one of those basic questions. Like if I was granted a visit to the Oracle, and I can ask five questions about the universe like that would be on there you know I just really that would be one yeah, of your I want to know our context like what is this place it's in the same category as like does the earth go around the sun you know this basic facts about the nature of our existence to me are yeah. pretty important yeah what would be your number one <laughs> what would be my number one you, you get five questions what would be your, your like <laughs> your, your top uh, <laughs> I think my first question would be, does the universe have a beginning, you know, and if so, what was it? Because if there is a creation, then that creation tells you a lot about like the context of our lives. And if there wasn't, then like, wow. Yeah. I mean, I say that that's sort of my preferred answer, but I'll admit it's also kind of hard to digest an eternal universe. That is pretty hard to fit into your tiny little non-eternal brain. Yeah, totally. To some extent, I wonder so then, like, why, why the shape question is interesting to you is because it, it would sort of, the shape question would unleash a lot of other answers. Is that, is that sort of how you think about that question? Like, it would be cool to know the answer because of the sort of cascade of stuff? Or is it just like, it would be cool to know this, this <laughs> thing because it's fundamental? To me, it burns that there are facts about the universe that exist that are out there that we do not know. So, yeah, that really, that really chaps my hide that we just do not know. <laughs> You know, there's so much about the universe, these facts that just exist out there that we don't know. You know, maybe aliens have figured it all out and they know and they would tell us and we just haven't even met them yet. To me, that's endlessly frustrating. That's it. Yeah, I've been I'm visualizing all the cosmologists like just walking around angrily all the time. <laughs> so where do people go if they want to buy The Universe Abridged Beyond Usefulness and also your new book with Kelly? 
The Universal Bridge Beyond the Point of Usefulness is available on Kickstarter. You'll just uh, Google or search Kickstarter for it. So you can buy it through the Kickstarter uh, with A City on Mars, but A City on Mars is also available for pre-order at fine bookstores everywhere. If you do not wish to order from one of the giant uh, conglomerates, if, if you go to acityonmars.com, then you can get uh, other options like Powell's and, and, and indie books and cool stuff like that. Or you can just go to your beloved local bookstore. That's the best option of all. Awesome. Well, I recommend everybody out there get Zach's book on the universe abridged and also Zach and Kelly's book, A City on Mars. I've read both of them and they're both a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Zach, before I let you go, I have one more question for you. Why do cartoonists want to write books about cosmology? That's a good question. I know. There's, I'll give you a theory that has no basis. Uh, or no, I, I couldn't possibly substantiate it, but like web cartoonists early web cartoonists are like high percentage dork wads right <laughs> and so now now that all of us are getting to the phase of our lives where uh we have to do more things uh we are all like turning to our dork passions uh that that, that is my theory there's, there's a surprisingly high number of physics dropouts uh, in in the early cartooning community <laughs> so it, it was it was entirely predictable from the late 90s that this would happen well then i'm really glad that the wannabe physicist inside all those cartoonists is getting to finally explore that passion <laughs> Yes. All right. Well, thanks very much, Zach, for joining us today. And everybody go out there and check out Zach's book and Zach and Kelly's new book, A City on Mars. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.